Uh, Father, we thank you that we have a, a warm place to meet when it's cold outside or a dry place when it's wet. Uh, our modern world, Father, can cause us to forget the blessings we have in the everyday things of life. As Paul told us, if we have food and clothing in this, we can be content. And yet, Father, we have so much more. And that is just a reflection of your grace and your love for us and the careful way in which you provide. And I thank you, Lord, for that, for this church and all its provision for our opportunity to to meet, our opportunity to broadcast what we do to a larger audience and our opportunity to fellowship together in service to you. And I am thankful, as always, that you've gifted me and asked me to teach, given me the privilege to do so in an audience, a group of brothers and sisters who care enough to want to join me in it. And thank you, Father, for all of that. We rejoin the study, Father, knowing that you have prepared it for us. We ask you to explain these things, as always, in a clear way, guide us to what we need to know so that we may serve you better. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, friends, tonight we conclude the judgments that mark the first half of the tribulation. So here you are, already halfway through this seven-year period as the book gives it to us. And with that, we'll move into the next major part of the book and of the seven years. So we're studying the second wave of judgments called the trumpet judgments. They are called trumpet judgments because each of these judgments is announced, as you know, by a trumpet. These followed the seal judgments that opened the seven years. And trumpets have traditionally been used in Scripture as a warning mechanism. God speaks through trumpets at times as a warning. And so these judgments, the second wave, are trumpets to warn the world that the end is near. We studied the first four last week, and those were the judgments that brought damage to the physical earth. You remember? First, a third of the earth was burned up. Then a third of the oceans turned to blood. Then a third of the fresh water became poisonous. And the warnings implied by these judgments were the earth is not going to last. The earth is not a permanent home. The earth is getting ready to be reshaped, in fact. The end is coming. And then, beginning with the fifth judgment, we moved into what the Bible calls are the woe judgments. Remember, in the cascading of these judgments, where the seventh of each wave represents the next full wave, well, at the very end of the second wave of trumpets, the, the last three trumpet judgments are all the woe judgments, which means the last two trumpet judgments and then the seventh trumpet, which is all of the bowl judgments. Those collectively are called the three woes. The word woe just means judgment. And so what we're hearing is that these final three trumpets bring an especially difficult time for humanity. In contrast to the first ones that were all touching the earth, these judgments are primarily focused on the person, the body of the individuals who live on earth. The first of those, if you remember, was what we studied last week. The scorpion-like demonic uh, presence that goes out from the pit and stings, as John called it, attacks humanity for five months without relief. And as you remember, when the pain became so great that they could not bear it anymore and they wished to get rid of it by killing themselves, the Lord prevents everyone from dying. And as such, this judgment gave the unsaved humanity of the earth a preview of what hell is like, unending suffering without escape. And it becomes a bit of a preview of what hell will be like if they are not inclined to believe And that's where we ended. One woe done, two woes yet to come. So that picks us back up in Revelation 9, but in verse 13. So let's go there next. 
Verse 13, Then the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released so that they would kill a third of mankind. The number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat on them. The riders had breastplates, the color of fire and hyacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions. Out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. So back in verse 12, we're told uh, from last week that the second and third woes are still ahead of us after the first woe is complete. Now what that's telling you is that these are sequential. And I think that's probably a a degree of mercy because how could you have had all this going on at the same time? So the first woe has to play out. That is, the five months has to finish before the next woe kicks in. And as we get to that point here with the second woe, just take a moment to think about what that transition must have been like. Can you imagine what it must have been like for the people to experience the relief of the removal of those five months? Right? They suffered what must have seemed like an eternity. And I submitted to you last week, I don't think they knew that there was an end. There's no indication they're told it's going to be five months. And so at some point it just goes away. It's like having your life sentence commuted uh, out, of the, out of the blue. But then a new woe comes. And in this case, it's the form of a great army of horsemen, we're told, led by four angels. Now, as we did with the scorpions in the case of the first woe, let's try to make some sense of the characters that are in view here, angels, horsemen, and the like. And once again, the clues in the text will lead you very directly to the answer. So let's go back to the text for a minute. We start with the origin of this judgment. It says here that a voice from the altar in heaven ordered that certain angels be released. Now, the voice at the altar, God himself, is the chief actor causing everything that happens here. He harnesses supernatural agents, angels, to bring about these events. So you immediately begin to see that what's coming here has a supernatural, not natural, origin, that being the angels, and then the rest of it just keeps that theme going. You notice next the angels are set loose from a place where they were bound on earth, specifically near the river Euphrates. Angels that are bound, and that would mean in captivity, always refers to fallen angels. You know, God's not up there binding good angels. All right, that doesn't make any sense. And furthermore, to be bound on the earth is itself a reflection of a fallen angel because the earth is not the home of the angelic realm apart from fallen angels. And then on top of all of that, you have the location of Euphrates. And that itself confirms a demonic source because Euphrates, the river Euphrates, modern day Iraq, but it's in the biblical area of Mesopotamia. And Mesopotamia is the biblical home, as it were, for Satan. That's his home territory. That's his, that's his home field. Um, that's where the Garden of Eden was. That's where the problems began. And as we get deeper into this book, you're going to find that that becomes ground zero for the demonic work of the time of tribulation. So it's a, there's a good reason why that part of the world seems so entrenched with uh, darkness and 
the work of the enemy. And I would submit to you, it's not a surprise that when we send, for example, our soldiers into that part of the world, many of them come back very troubled. May I suggest to you that that trouble may be spiritual and not just physical. So the Lord begins the second woe judgment by releasing four demons, as I'm now calling them, because it's reflective of the text, not just regular angels, but demonic angels. And they had been bound, God says, prepared specifically for this day, for this hour even. What does that mean that they were prepared for this judgment? Well, in in simple terms, it just means that the Lord bound them at some prior moment, knowing when he would let them loose, for he had a purpose in mind for these angels, or these demons. And another way to say it is, if they had not been bound at that earlier time, they would have been killing people the whole time. That they're so depraved, they're so terrible, that binding them was the only solution to avoiding the mayhem that they want to create. But then, by the same token, when the time comes, let them loose, and you get what you know you're going to get. But even then, that suggests something deeper, because we know the Lord created all things, including the angelic realm, including those angels who eventually fell. So in a sense, you can say that in the day that the Lord created these four angels, even before their fall, he did so knowing that when they fell, they would become especially terrible in their nature, excessively violent and hateful, and the Lord looked forward to that day, knowing how he would put it to work when the time came. I mean, at the end of the day, God is sovereign. And now the time has come for them to do with the work that God has in mind. These four demons go forth, we're told to kill one-third of humanity by means of a 200 million horseman army, John says. Now in Greek, here's what it literally says. In Greek it says two myriads of myriads. And a myriad is 10,000. So what John just did is give us a math equation. Two times 10,000 times 10,000. I'll give you one guess what that equals. 200 million. Now, at that point, you might reasonably ask, how did John know it's exactly 200 million? I'd say it's because he counted the number of legs and divided by four. (laughs) Clearly, I'll let some of the Aggies get that joke here in a minute. I just alienated half of my audience for those online. Now, John anticipated that you would wonder how he could come up with such a perfect number, such a precise number so quickly, and so he adds there at the end, I heard the number of them. That's the whole point of that mentioning, is so that you understand you can believe the number. And that little detail is interesting for one reason to me. It reminds us you always take the numbers given in the Bible literally, unless specifically told otherwise. And here it's easy to see that we take it literally because John tells us he heard it. But even if he hadn't said that he heard it and it left us wondering how he knew, nevertheless, you would take it literally unless the text gives you a reason to do otherwise. So we know the angels were demons. What do we make of the horsemen? Well, this is another place where speculation often takes the place of careful observation of the text because some have imagined, and I'm sure some of you have heard this, Some at this point will tell you, oh, that's referring to a human army that goes out killing. And when you say, well, where do you find 200 million people and put them in an army, what is the answer you get? Yeah, China. Thank God for China. We wouldn't have a hope to understand this verse, right? Here's a a news article from sometime in 2018 where it says, uh, you know, as Asian nations strengthen their armies, the the lower text says, leading to a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. (laughs) No, (laughs) having nothing whatsoever to do with Bible prophecy. Remember all the things that have to happen before we get to the point of this moment? 
Ten kings that take over all the nations of the earth and refashion all the governments, including China, to say nothing of the armies. The Antichrist rising to power and causing World War III, destroying, at this point, almost 50% of the earth's population. Famine, uh, economic collapse, pestilence, wild beasts. I mean, at the point we are now, people are barely walking and they have clubs in their hand. This is not uh, a case in which we find the sophistication of that playing any role whatsoever in the, in the point where we are at in tribulation. It just goes to show how easily people just run wild with this stuff because it's titillating, it's interesting. It, it excites us to talk about it as if we know what we're talking about. <laughs> it's all, most of what you hear, and, and some of this may be true for me too, most of what you hear about Revelation is nonsense. You know, it, unless you go to the Bible and look at it carefully, don't listen to what people have to say. It's just ripe with nonsense out there. All right, so it's not the Chinese army. Um, notice the description of the horsemen. The riders have breastplates made of fire and brimstone. Now, in your Bible, it may say, like mine did, uh, of the color of fire. or of the co- It's actually not that way in Greek. In the Greek, it literally reads, made of fire and brimstone. Uh, the horses, they have heads of lions. Smoke and fire and brimstone come out of their mouths. As far as I know, the Chinese do not outfit their soldiers this way. Right? This is, I mean, and by the way, where do we go to try to solve that problem if we're still inclined to describe this as the Chinese army? What do, what do you think they, they would say that we're looking at with that description? A tank. Friends, that's just, that's just ripe speculation. I mean, it's like the thing we saw last week with the helicopter. You know, the fact that we can point to something and sort of, you know, okay, I can see how that might... That's not how you interpret the Bible. What does it say? It says they have breastplate, they are riders on horses with breastplates made of fire and brimstone. Guess what John saw? That. Not that. This. He's not trying to describe, look, let me say this. If you'd never seen that before, you were John, you'd never seen that before in your life, you had no idea what that was, would you call it a horse? (laughs) You see, he knows what a horse looks like, even if he's trying to approximate it, that's not what a horse looks like. It's just stupidity on our part that we, we kind of think anyone that wasn't born, say, after 1880 or so is a complete idiot and, you know, must have lived in caves and ate over fire and, you know, dragged women around by hair. It's just our sense is that anyone that hasn't lived in our age can't be sophisticated enough to understand the things we do. And it's demeaning. John would have known better than to describe it the way he did if that's what he was looking at. And never mind that God himself wouldn't have been trying to confuse us. So I get ticked off about this stuff because it's deceiving Christians leading them to think that that's how you interpret the Bible. It's not a game. It just means what it says. All right, moving on. I I got it out of my system. Clearly, what are we looking at? This is a supernatural event. We all know that. (laughs) It started with God and his throne. Number two, it's being led by demonic leaders. Who do the demons lead? Who's the army they have under their control? The demons in general, right? And so just like the scorpions from the first woe, in this case, you're looking at demons who have a very, obviously, a very uh, frightening appearance and powers that are not consistent with anything natural being led by their masters. And it continues the pattern we've already seen in this book for these particular judgments, which is that God is now leaning heavily on the demonic realm as the agents for action on these particular judgments, and demons seem especially well-suited to the whole purpose, don't they? They are particularly good at destruction and mayhem and misery and killing, and God is harnessing that for the purposes that he has. And 
if there's any doubt about their supernatural identities in all that I've said, look at the way they take life in verse 19. It says, they kill a third of mankind on earth with their mouths and their tails, shooting fire brimstone like four-footed flamethrowers. And their tails kill like serpents, which I presume means that they have a deadly bite. Here again, nothing in the text suggests you should try to symbolize or make a metaphor out of any of that. It is just literally what John saw, and clearly it's not natural or of this world. And it only makes sense that these horsemen are 200 million demons sent to kill a third of those who still live on the earth for all the reasons we just looked at. And on top of all that, the Lord actually tells us this is coming in the Old Testament, in Joel. You read this, chapter two, verse one. Blow a trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spreading over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be anything after it to the years of many generations. We'll pause there, we're gonna go further, but let me just pause. That sets the opening here, and what I'm showing you there is simply, Joel 2 is talking about tribulation. You see that, right? The day of the Lord. Uh, Obviously, day of darkness and gloom, never been anything like it. Okay, I'm just setting the context. Now, moving on, verse three. A fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them, and nothing at all escapes them. And their appearance is like the appearance of horses and like war horses, so they run. Now, in the midst of the tribulation, Joel starts explaining this this coming army of of war horses, but you notice he says they're like war horses. Now look, Joel knew what a horse looked like. He doesn't say these are horses, he says they're like horses, which is a way of saying they're not horses. But I don't know what else I'd call them. And then he says, as they go, they have a consuming fire before them. Where did the fire come out of the horses? Out of their mouth, right? They have a consuming fire before them, mirroring John's description, and the land behind them burns like flame. So as they pass by, they leave a burning destruction in their wake. And, And here's the thing that really shows you that they're demonic. It says the land is like Eden before them. Now that's a reference to the fall in the garden, that in other words, the demons see the land like Satan saw Adam and woman, a place to be destroyed, a target to go after, their enemy, in other words. And after they pass through the land, it's left desolate. Nothing escapes them, much as after Satan went through the the garden, he left it destroyed, essentially, by having brought brought about the fall. Okay, next part of the text. And this is in two columns there. Verse five, with the noise as of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble like a mighty people arranged for battle. Before them, the people are in anguish. All faces turn pale. They run like mighty men. They climb the wall like soldiers and they each march in line, nor do they deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his path. When they burst through the defenses, they do not break ranks. They rush on the city, they run on the wall, they climb into the houses, they enter through the windows like a thief. Before them the earthquakes and heavens tremble. The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. All right, you can just imagine the scene. Uh, I can almost imagine how it would be portrayed in Hollywood with special effects, right? This, This moving wave 
And as it moves, it's unstoppable and it's disciplined as it sweeps across the land. They enter houses like thieves through windows. Certainly regular horses do not do that. This is something very different. Relentless, flame-throwing, you know, serpent-tailed demons that just move. And Joel says that as this goes about, the judgment's accompanied by natural calamities like earthquakes and celestial disturbances. And all of that fits the pattern of what we've been studying. And it confirms you're looking at something here, demonic, unleashed by God on humanity, accompanied by supernatural disturbances. And then one last verse, Joel 2.11, the Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great. For strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? I find it interesting that this uh, horde of demons is called God's army, similar in a way to what God says about the army of Assyria or else uh, the army of Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon. Though those are not godly institutions of their own, they are God's institution when he chooses to put them to work, and that's what we see happening here again. So like the first woe, there's great devastation here, only in this case, the effect of the horsemen is it says to leave a third of mankind dead. Now if you compare it to the first woe, the first woe produced great suffering for everyone, but no one died. In the second woe, it produces death for some, and everyone suffers as a result. And by that I mean having exactly one third of humanity die is designed to impact everyone either directly or indirectly. If one on three people die, one out of three people on earth, and, I, and by the way, this is not to suggest you have like one third of the earth dead and everyone else is untouched. It's more like pick three people, one of you's dead, okay? If one third of all humanity dies, you're gonna know, it's gonna touch you somehow, whether it's you who die or someone you know, because it's gonna be within families, it's gonna be within neighborhoods, churches, whatever's available on earth at that point. So. Uh, there is nothing that brings the questions of eternity and the future and judgment to mind more powerfully than the death of a loved one or a friend. Now, for the Christian, of course, the mourning over the loss of someone is tempered by the knowledge that they're doing just fine. And in a short time, you're going to be with them where they are. You, you really haven't lost them except but for a short time. But for the unbeliever, death is a wound with no relief. And there is no confidence that it leads to a better future, and there is no hope for any kind of reconciliation. They, they may try to make themselves feel better with little you know, platitudes about we're in a better place, or you know, I'll see you when, so I'll go up and see mom when I die, etc. But it's just that, it's just platitudes. They don't believe it either. Not in their heart of hearts, not the way we know the truth. They're just in a state of suffering and loss with questions. Now sometimes those questions will lead an unbeliever to open their heart to consider the promises that you find in Scripture, and that's the hope, right? And so you wonder, is the Lord using this suffering to bring so many on earth to faith? Obviously, a third have not. They're gone. But what will happen to the rest of the world after such an event? Well, verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and of stone and of wood which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. Now I want you to notice something. John says the rest, which of course means those who did not die. He says those who were not killed by the plagues do not repent nor turn to the Lord. They continue in 
worship of demons and all kinds of sin. But notice the comprehensive nature of that statement. None. No one who survives repents. The, the suggestion is that 100% of the earth that lived responded to these judgments without coming to faith. Now, take that for a moment and then remember also that we know there is faith happening at this time because we have 144,000 that are at work saving and we know that they're getting somewhere in that because we already heard they're gonna save you know, uncountable numbers and then we heard about the souls under the altar. There is, in fact, faith going on. We hear the, the result of it already. So how do you reconcile these two statements? That is, how do you explain how one group is succeeding and then we have another statement that seems to suggest it's 100% failure, at least at this moment? Well, it's actually easy to reconcile them when you remember what the Bible says about how faith comes in the first place. Romans 2.4, do you not think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Paul says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. And what he means, of course, is that the grace of God working in our hearts prompts our faith response, and that's how people are saved. So for those in tribulation who are the recipients of the grace of God, well, salvation will be the result for them. And perhaps some of these judgments are the way in which God prepares their hearts to receive that grace. We, we don't know. But we do know that calamity in and of itself saves absolutely zero people. That is, circumstances never save a person. Emotion never saves a person. Uh, the repentance of sorrow that the world experiences, a la Esau, for example, never saves anyone. It's not a saving kind of sorrow. It's not a godly sorrow, Paul calls it. And what he means, of course, is it does not originate with God. God himself does not prompt it. God himself is not working in the heart to use it. It is simply the human response to a bad world. And that happens every day to everyone at some level, and it's not a saving effect. So unless and until the Lord is at work in someone's heart, the natural man will not turn to God out of calamity. The old adage that there is no atheist in a foxhole is a lie. There are lots of atheists in foxholes or pagans or just deceived people. And if you want proof of what I'm saying, you have it in front of you. The most unprecedented, severest judgment the world will and has ever known produced how many believers? Zero. So will anything else do it? No. Faith is not based in fear. It's not based in emotion. It's not even based in convincing proof. It's only based in the gift that comes from God himself, according to Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Faith, Paul says that you are saved by grace, through faith, and it, that is your faith, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not by works, so that no man may boast. And these judgments make clear the reality of man's predicament. Forever, if there were a time when trial and calamity could prompt faith, this would qualify, right? But these judgments just affirm what we already know, that apart from the work of God in the heart of the unbeliever, people don't turn to God. There is no one who seeks for God, no, not one. So at the conclusion of chapter 9, let's do a little bit of review of what we've seen so far. At the end of chapter 9, where are we? Well, the judgments of the first half of tribulation have come to an end. So we've gone through the seal judgments, and we've gone through all but one 
of the trumpet judgments. And of course, the reason that last one has not yet been covered is because it itself are those seven bold judgments that sit out at the end. Now, I'm giving you this this view here a little prematurely. We haven't had a chance to talk about the bold judgments, and that's fine. We'll come back to it. But I guess for, for now, you take my word on it, the bold judgments sit out there at the end of the seven years. They conclude the period of the seven years. And as we get to the next section, you're soon going to see that the the place we go to now is a series of chapters that focus on the halfway point of this seven-year period. Before we do that, let's just assess what's happened in three and a half years. In three and a half years, 50% of the Earth's population is gone. Now, if it were to happen today, for example, uh, I think roughly there's eight billion people on Earth. We're talking about four billion people dead, but you can flip that around. There's four billion people alive. Uh, still at this point. On the other hand, that four billion is occupying a planet in which one-third of the earth is uninhabitable, one-third of all the bodies of water are uh, undrinkable or unnavigable, and the worst is yet to come. The first woe judgment uh, has happened, the second woe judgment has happened, the third is still out there, that's the bold judgments, which also go by the name the wrath of God or the great tribulation. But before you enter into those events, as I said, there's this interim period called mid-tribulation, and we can call it mid-trib. That'll make it sound like you're in the club. You know, you have the the lingo. Mid-trib. What is mid-trib? Well, I mean, to put it very bluntly, mid-trib is just the three-and-a-half-year point, right? We're just talking about a point in time in which you have half of the time of the seven done and the other half still to come. Not very complicated, right? And what you're about to study in this book you're going to find that this moment is so central, and I don't mean to make a pun with that, but it's central to the story of tribulation because uh, a lot of things change in this moment. In fact, it's such a great period of change on earth that it deserves special attention in the book of Revelation itself. The book of Revelation devotes four chapters just to the events of the middle of tribulation, and then on top of that, it adds one more chapter in the beginning as an introduction to the middle tribulation period, and then one more chapter at the end as a conclusion. So you end up with six chapters. Chapters 10 through 15 uh, cover these sorts of things, which we looked at when we were here, when I showed this to you a few weeks back. So let's put those chapters on there for a second. You have chapters 11 through 14 covering the mid-trib events. You have chapter 10 introducing it, and you have chapter 15 summarizing or concluding it. That should tell you something about how important this moment is in the middle of tribulation. But uh, technically, the midpoint of tribulation is not a period of time, it's a moment. It's a, it's a right, you're either halfway done or you're, you're moving into the second half. And that confuses some people. You can also express the halfway point as you know, three and a half years or also uh, several other ways, 42 months, uh, 1260 days when measured on a Jewish calendar. Uh, uh, our favorite expression, times, time, and half a time. That's another way to express it. Uh, so when we say mid-trib, or we use those other time measurements, what are we talking about? Well, we're actually not talking about a single moment. You notice how I've drawn it on that chart. It's actually a period of time that overlaps slightly on either end of first or second half of tribulation. It's basically an amalgamation of a bunch of stuff that all happens simultaneously kind of stacked on top of itself in that one moment, which fundamentally alters the world, fundamentally alters what's going on in tribulation. It's so central to everything that happens after it. And in order to get through it all, we need these six chapters to talk about it. 
And understanding they're not in sequential order, they're actually all simultaneous activities. So you really take them and stack them on top of each other in your mind. Now, how do I know that these chapters have that quality? How do we know that they all are happening at the same time at mid-trib? Well, you have the chapters that introduce and conclude, chapters 10 and 15, and the chapters that sit between them all have a time reference in them. All of them have somewhere in the chapter a reference to the fact that they happen at the midpoint of tribulation. And those time references will be either, and let you guess with me, time times half time, what else? 42 months, 1260 days. One of those three will be used. And that's your indication to know, ah, mid-trib, ah, mid-trib, ah, mid-trib. Chapter 10 does not have that reference. Chapter 15 does not have that reference. But they talk about what is coming or in both cases, what is coming next. So 10 talks about what's coming in mid-trib, and chapter 15 talks about what's coming in the second half of tribulation. So they act as uh, like bookends, as transition chapters, but the ones they sandwich all have that time reference in them. And that's your indication to know. Flip them sideways, so to speak, and stack them on top of each other, and put in your mind all of that happening at the same time. So that's mid-trib. We're going to do the introduction chapter tonight. Let's look at the introduction, chapter 10, and we'll read this, verse 1. There's a lot on the screen, maybe small to read, so look at your Bible if you can. Verse 1, I saw another strong angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was like the sun, and his feet like pillars of fire. And he had in his hand a little book, which was open. He placed his right hand on the sea, and his left on the land, And he cried out with a loud voice, as when a lion roars. And when he had cried out, the seven peals of thunder uttered their voices. When the seven peals of thunder had spoken, I was about to write, and I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven peals of thunder have spoken, and do not write them. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. But in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, then the mystery of God is finished as he preached to his servants, the prophets. All right, John says he sees this strong angel. Notice the strong difference in the description of this guy versus the four that came down earlier or any of the other demonic ones we've seen. Such a clear difference, right? Face like the sun, rainbows and clouds. I mean, you know, you could, put, you could decorate your child's nursery with angels like this, right? You wouldn't want to do the other ones, though. And... As this distinctive angel comes down, he says it's another strong one because it's similar uh, to the one he saw in chapter 7. Back in 7, chapter 7, verse 2, he he saw that similar angel with the power to seal the the servants of God, the 144,000. So his face like the sun, feet like pillars of fire. It's a fearsome angel of great authority. Now, when you see something mentioned with such strength and such distinction, you begin to ask, is this an angel I should know? Who is this angel? It must be prominent. Well, there's actually a clue to his identity, and it's found in what he carries. He carries a little book. The word for book in Greek is uh, bibliorion, and that's the large version of a scroll. This is the diminutive version of that word in Greek, biblos, and that's a word for a tiny scroll, a little one. So John says he's carrying this little scroll. It's kind of a funny moment if you think about it. Big, giant, powerful angel, little scroll, right? And when the angel reaches the earth... He's large enough to span so that his hands could be on sea and land and then later standing on sea and land at the same time. Crying out with his loud voice sounds like a lion. You ever been to the zoo when a lion just 
Let's go when you don't expect it nearby. I mean, the power of that all of a sudden, that's shocking. That's what he's hearing. Now, in response to that, heaven starts to talk with the sound of thunder. Seven voices of thunder, he says. And they must have revealed some deep truth to John because he's about to write it, but he's told, nope, not yet. Seal it up. Keep it secret. And the whole scene is just so odd at that point. You know, what's all this supposed to mean? We're almost forced to ask, is there some clue here that we use to decode it all? Because how else would we make sense of it? Well, you can't make sense of it unless you studied other books of the Bible. And specifically, students of Daniel will immediately recognize this scene because it comes out of chapter 12 of Daniel. In chapter 12 of Daniel, you also find a strong angel who appears in a similar manner near land and water. And in that earlier moment, another prophet, this time Daniel, is told to also seal up things he was revealed at that time to be shown to later times. And when you see the similarity between the two, it immediately makes the connection in your mind, and that's the point. That is, this scene is intended, the one here in Revelation, is intended to draw your thinking back to what you would have already studied in Daniel, and in that connection, begin to look at them together, and as you do, you make sense of it. So let's spend a little time in Daniel 12. Daniel 12, verse 1. Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise, and there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who's found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of heaven, and those who lead the many to righteous like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth, and knowledge will increase. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, Two others were standing, one on this bank of the river and the other on the other bank of the river. And one said to the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river, How long will it be until the end of these wonders? I heard the man dressed in linen who was above the waters of the river as he raised his right hand and his left toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be time, times, and half a time. And as soon as they finished shattering the power of the holy people, all these events will be completed." As for me, I heard, but could not understand. So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the end time. All right, so we're kind of dropping in here, obviously, to the final chapter of Daniel. Let's spend a minute here just getting some context. The chapter opens saying, now at that time. Well, that begs the question, what time? Well, he's referring back to things that were just being discussed in chapter 11. Well, if you go to chapter 11, and we won't, but if you were to go there, you find out that Daniel in chapter 11 had just been speaking about the events that will end this age, specifically the rise of the Antichrist and the work of the Antichrist in conquering the world and attacking the saints. And it's at that time that you now see these events. So that puts us squarely in tribulation. And actually, it puts us right at the midpoint because that's the moment when the Antichrist rises to power. We'll see that in in later chapters. So, at the, basically we can say it this way. At the midpoint of tribulation, the strong angel Michael will arise. And arise here means to assume your assigned role or assume your station. And Michael will take his station in a period of great distress, unlike anything else, a reference to the great tribulation, the second half of tribulation. By the way, the great tribulation is a name Jesus gives 
to the second half of the tribulation in Matthew 24 when he says, for then there will be, speaking of the second half, a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. So if the second half is unlike anything that's ever happened, then by definition it's greater than the first half. That's the idea. So as we move through the mid-trib chapters, what we're going to learn is what makes the great tribulation so terrible and so great. Back to Daniel for a minute. Daniel's description in verse 5 of what he sees is similar to the description of John's angel in Revelation 10. Not exactly, but notice the similarity. A man in linen or in white hovering above a river, two other messengers on either side of the bank of the river, uh, the angel descends over the water, and in John's case, you had the angel descend with one foot on water, one foot on the land, similar. In Revelation 10, John said he heard something spoken by thunder, which he wasn't allowed to, to write, it had to be sealed. Likewise, Daniel hears something spoken from the angel, but then could not write it down either, it had to be sealed. I mean, you see the connection, it's very clear there's some connection being intended in all of this. And here's the connection. The scene we're studying in Daniel here is part one, and John's moment is part two of the same conversation with a great angel, the same great angel. The angel that visits Daniel tells that prophet, I want you to prepare a scroll, and I want you to write down what you've heard, but I want you to seal it because it's not going to be revealed till the end of the age. And he hears what he hears, and he says, how long is this stuff you're telling me going to last? What's the answer he gets? Time, times, half a time. Three and a half years. Half of the time of tribulation. That's one of our references to know we're looking at a midpoint event, right? And Daniel, we know now, was learning. Here's what Daniel got told. Here's what Daniel wrote. He wrote the events of the second half of tribulation. Daniel was the first human being, and for a long time, the only one who knew what the second half of tribulation looked like, and he wrote it on a scroll. But he couldn't understand it, and that doesn't surprise us, right? He didn't understand it, so he asked for clarification, and he said, sorry, Daniel, <laughs> you know, just go on your way, seal it up, you'll learn it later. So here's what, the, but notice the angel says this, it's sealed to the end of the age. Now, if you've been paying attention from the beginning and can remember it all, you now know what he's talking about, because in effect, what the angel was telling Daniel is, this is what happens at the end of the age of the Gentiles, and write it down now, seal it up, because we're not going to reveal these things until we get to the last days. When do the last days start? The church age, remember, sits on top of the last days. Remember the writer of Hebrews, or James, when he says, you're in the last days to the first century church? So in the last days is anything after the Messiah's revealing. So Daniel is told, what you're writing down, we will not reveal until after the Messiah is revealed and then it will be made known. How is that prophecy being revealed in the last days? Well, that moves us back to chapter 10 of Revelation. In chapter 10 of, and I'll go back to this in a second. In chapter 10 of Revelation, what have we already read? In chapter 10 of Revelation, Daniel's little scroll that he wrote and sealed up and handed back to the angel is now being delivered by that same angel to John. Because John is the one who revealed what Daniel wrote to the last days church. It was sealed up from Daniel until the last days. Well, that's John. And John was the one who got to reveal it. And so John says in verse 2, I see this angel coming to me with a little scroll. 
Now he hears, John hears other things as well that he cannot reveal yet, but those things he gets to reveal much sooner than Daniel did because what he heard that he couldn't write down in that moment are the things that finish the time of tribulation. So those come up in later chapters. Meanwhile, you have this angel swearing upon God in heaven that there will no longer be any delay. What delay is he referring to? Well, the events of the great tribulation were first revealed to Daniel long ago, but they were sealed, and now they're being revealed to John so that they can be quickly completed. There'll be no more delay. So in a future day, now here's where your mind gets warped a little bit, because John lived in our past, but he was looking at things from our future, So what Daniel wrote was unsealed in our past so that we would know it, but it speaks of things that haven't yet happened. So the delay is still happening for us, but the point is when the events themselves are happening, it will almost be over. All right, so in a future day, that great angel will arise. According to Daniel 12, that great angel will arise in a time of tribulation. When he does, the events of the great tribulation will happen And they will be fulfilled when the seventh trumpet is blown. That brings about the seven bold judgments. And now, how does Daniel's information get transferred to John so that John could give it to us in the book of Revelation? Well, in a very interesting way. Uh, Is that right here? Yeah. Then the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me and saying, go take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the land. And so I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book. I would have loved to have seen that moment, by the way. Huge, impressive angel, face like the sun. And you're told, hey, go up there and ask him for the book. I don't want to go up asking for the book. You ask him for the book. John has to go up there, hey, can I have your book? Um, and he said to me, take it and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. I took the little book out of the angel's hand and ate it, and in my mouth it was sweet as honey, and when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. So how does the information move from Daniel to John in this very uh, visceral way, very visual way? Normally a scroll is a papyrus roll, and it's not edible, or at least not palatable. And in this case, It must have been made so for John's sake, obviously, because he's able to eat it. The angel says the book would be sweet in the mouth, bitter in the stomach. I can demonstrate this for you. Um, So I have a little scroll here. Very sweet. Kind of chocolatey in this case. I'll see how it sits on me later. What does it mean, though? Obviously, it's meaning something specifically. Now, here again, it does not mean it didn't happen literally. John ate it. He tasted it. It, it was made, he was made able to eat it because it's supernatural, but the point of it is still the main issue. And I think you've probably heard people say this, and it's not terribly surprising, but there is a certain sweetness to prophecy. That is, for the prophet, there's, uh, and for his audience for that matter, there's a certain sweetness to knowing about things to come, about having that insider information, if you will, having been revealed things that you find attractive and interesting and and the like. And more than that, what it's talking about are things we look forward to, at least in the sense that the end of this age and the beginning of the next is what we're all looking for. The kingdom, the, the life we have with Christ in that time is what we all want. So there's certainly that attractive side to it. But in the same way that the analogy played out, that's the initial impression. That's the beginning of it, right? Because before we know what it really contains, 
You're only thinking about the good stuff, generally. Now, some people take the opposite view. I guess there's pessimists out there, and they don't want to study the book of Revelation because they're worried, they're afraid. I know that's out there. But most people react initially with some positive interest in, in prophecy. But the truth of what the transition requires, that is, the movement of this age into the next, what's required to make that happen, as you get to understand that, as it sinks in, it's bitter, it's, it's hard to swallow. Because the reality is, this world cannot move from its present age into the next without a whole lot of judgment happening in the process. Because you have literally billions of souls that must face judgment for sin, absent the covering of Christ, and they will endure a level of turmoil and distress that nothing has ever, no one's ever seen before. And so that is an unfortunate but necessary side effect, if you will, of the transition out of a sinful fallen world into the next. There's no getting around it. You know, you, you can ask for God to avoid that judgment, but let me tell you, you don't want a God who would say yes to that answer, to that question, because he's either faithful or he's not. You know what I'm saying? You can't have, you can't have it halfway. You can't say, be faithful to your promises to bring good things, but please forget you made promises of judgment for bad things. In fact, just kind of put all of that aside and only bring us the good. Because if he could keep that request, what it would tell you is he's not a promise-keeping God. It means his promises aren't really worth much because he can change his mind. And if he can change his mind about those promises, why are you confident he won't change them about the ones he made to you concerning salvation? So he's either promise-keeping or he's not. If he is, his word has said that the wages of sin is death. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. These are things he has spoken that must be kept. Otherwise, he's not a promise-keeping God. And as much as we struggle with the idea of judgment, what you can't struggle with is the concept of faithfulness. And that's the bitter side of prophecy, a faithful God. So as a preparation step to receiving the knowledge of the end of the age, in this little drama that God gives to John in the form of eating the scroll, he reminds John, this is serious business. You're called to prophesy what you've received from Daniel concerning the state of affairs for many people, kings and all, across the world during the great tribulation, and it is a difficult time. And what follows in chapters 11 through 19 are the events that John receives from Daniel, so to speak, and that John now has the privilege of revealing. And I want to finish tonight with just one little quick piece back in Daniel uh, chapter 12. At the end of 12, there's one little bit of information that's worth grabbing onto before we leave. Verse 10, it says, Many will be purged and purified and refined, but the wicked will act wickedly, and none of the wicked will understand. But those who have insight will understand. From the time that the regular sacrifice is abolished and the abomination of desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Now, Put a graph up here for you. Remember earlier in uh, Daniel 12, 7, we learned that the events of Daniel are uh, recorded on this scroll and that the times that they comprise were time, times, and half a time. So the scroll has three and a half years worth of information on it, and that's what Daniel wrote. That's what John now has swallowed. So let's, let's put it on a timeline here. So we know it starts tribulation. That was when the covenant got signed. We heard that in Daniel 9. The covenant between the Antichrist and the people of Israel, allowing Israel to return to their Temple Mount and begin to sacrifice again in a new temple of some kind. When that contract is signed, the seven-year tribulation officially begins. And Daniel 12 now has confirmed 
that the midpoint of tribulation is three and a half years in, as mid would suggest, and the angel tells Daniel that he can measure the second half of tribulation as also, what, time, times, and half a time, which is 1260 days. So we now see that the time on either side of the midpoint is the same, 1260 days. And then in verse 11, we're told that the midpoint of tribulation is the moment. This is from what I just read in Daniel. Daniel 12:11 says, the midpoint of tribulation is defined now as the moment when the Antichrist abolishes that covenant, when he puts an end to sacrifice. We heard that in Daniel 9. Now we're seeing it again here in Daniel 12. And it's the midpoint of tribulation. So it affirms for us that that covenant seems to be the key issue driving all of what happens in tribulation. That is, it starts tribulation, and it's also the event, the cutting off of that covenant is also the event which triggers a whole bunch of stuff leading into a different set of circumstances for the second half of tribulation. So Daniel 12 confirms that the breaking of that covenant is central. It's the midpoint. So now you have your mile markers for pretty much the whole of tribulation. Starting with the covenant, midpoint 1260 days in when the covenant is broken, another 1260 to get to the end, time, times, and half a time, Daniel says. And then what we just read included an extra 30 days, if you notice, because he said, from the abolishing of sacrifice until the abomination of desolation is completed, that is, it is cleansed, there's 1290 days, not 60, but 90, that's an extra 30, and that's why you see it up there in green. So chapters 11 through 14 tell us about what goes on at that moment when the covenant is broken and all that comes with it and what it means and what it leads to. That's the study we're about to embark on in the next several weeks. What goes on at the middle and why and how does it relate to that covenant being broken? What does it change? And the 30 days you saw there at the end, well, we're going to learn more about what that means when we get toward the end of the seven years, toward the end of this uh, study in chapter 19. And just in case you're already not confused enough, there's another 45 days after the 30 before the kingdom begins. Putting them together, we call it the 75-day interval, and we'll talk about that more as we get there. But that's why I just wanted to cover that so you know why that said 1290 and not 1260. All right, so that's, you should now have, as we break and finish here tonight, you should now have a fairly clear understanding, even if all the details aren't still in your head, that's fine, it's online. But what you should now understand is this last seven years, what it's for, what starts it, why it was promised, how the first half plays out, what the effects of those first three and a half years are. And at this point, you stop somewhere right there in your understanding and you know there's some big stuff that happens at the middle, right around that three and a half year point, a little before and after, a bunch of stuff that happens all at the same time. And because of what happens in that period of time, the second half is a whole nother ball, ball game, a whole nother ball of wax coming in the second half, okay? So we will end there. That's what we'll do. And then when we get back next week, we'll do one more of these and then we'll break for our holiday time and see you in January. All right, let's pray. As always, after we pray, there's time for some Q&A if you're interested. Father, we do look forward to the kingdom. And as we stay focused for a time on these events as the book presents them, the book reminds us, Father, that judgment is a part of the end and so is redemption. Uh, Salvation will be offered and received by many in that day, but refused by many as well. And Father, we trust in your providence for these things. And turning to our day, we know the same is true now. 
The world is filled with many who do not know you, and out of that, many who are being saved. And through the hands and feet, through the mouths of those in the church, you you do this work. I pray, Father, you would remind us of that every day. Let us be your witnesses in the days that remain for the souls you wish to receive. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.